Last week we finished chapter 2 of 1 Peter, and we were discussing how believers can submit even to unjust persecution, slaves to masters and whatnot, because we know we've been called by God to suffer for the sake of Christ. Following him means we actually have to take up our crosses to follow in his footsteps. Now, some will find it fitting that Peter moves from talking about suffering into talking about marriage today. For many, the two go hand in glove. Now, why do you think that is? Why are there hundreds of books written about marriage, conferences devoted to it, counselors who specialize in it? Now, the easy answer is because marriage is hard. <laughs> it's, it's not easy. You have two sinful strangers who meet. Maybe they're in love. Maybe it's for tax benefits. But they get married. And they come into the thing with their own baggage, their own sins, the family drama on both sides. And then, and then sometimes they think, you know what would make this even better? Is if we had tiny little sinners to, to compound all of our problems. Aging illness, financial worries. You start adding these things together, and it's no wonder many think marriage is a recipe for disaster. That's why 29% of young adults, I think, cohabitate rather than marry, because that's the idea we've given them. That that's the way marriage is. It's just a miserable time. That's the easy answer. Now, the more complicated answer is that our culture's view of marriage is broken. It stinks. It stinks. The way our television shows are set up and our movies and it's just this bumbling idiot of a dad and, and the overbearing mother and, and nothing ever goes right. And it's just we, we're, we're been in, in drained in that in our heads. It's just been poured into us. In modern society, the complementary roles of biblical headship for a husband and submission for a wife are hated with a passion. These ideas are seen as antiquated. They're merely leftovers of a sub-Christian culture which was put to death by modern feminism. It's just old stuff. We've got to get rid of that idea. Now, historically, there have been three views of marriage. This is not, I'm not telling you any new things you don't know. There's the traditional contractual marriage. And this was the way it was for thousands of years where two families would come together, strong families, and they would arrange a marriage Maybe for financial gain, for some sort of power, as you know, politicians still do this today. There's no love there, but they're together for power and for the names. And if the marriage failed, either the family would keep it together or the contract would keep it together. It's here where people often say things like, we've just become strangers in the same house. The contract is keeping them together. The second view is romantic marriage. That's the one that's really put forward by our culture. And that says you have to search for your perfect soulmate. Never settle for less. Mr. and Mrs. Wright, they're just around the next swipe of the app, you know, the next corner. They're right there. One such example of this is the TV show The Bachelor. Any uh, Bachelor fans here, you know? 21 years, five spinoffs, 60 seasons later... Nine couples married. <laughs> Nine couples out of all of that. Because there is no perfect 
romance in a sinful world. And the romantic, the romantic model tempts husbands and wives to quit. The, the first sign there is any trouble, the first sign that I, idealistic romance has failed, they quit via divorce. Or they find a new romance to chase after. And you hear people say, oh, pastor, you know, I, I just, I'm so happy. I've never been this happy before in my life. It's materialistic. It's purely transactional. What can I do for my happiness? Well, then there's the Christian view of marriage. We don't aim for a perfect romance. We know the world is sinful. People are messed up. And it's not merely contractual either. It is a covenant. And a covenant is a personal bond of love in a lifelong relationship that is sealed With vows. God is our witness. And without the pledges of fidelity, what happens when our feelings change? Which they will. When the ravages of time or illness or unequal maturation make one partner look weaker than the other. And I said make them look weaker than the other. What will keep our spouses faithful when that happens? And the answer is covenant. Christian marriage is about covenant keeping. That's because God designed the relationship between husband and wife to represent the relationship between between Christ and his church. That's the deepest meaning of marriage, whether you knew it or not. And that's why true love, which is built upon a love that Christ has for us, wants to endure. True love aims for infinity and beyond. Because God's covenant faithfulness to us is our norm. The fact that he is faithful to us is our measure for the way we are to love our spouses. Jesus does not love the church because we are pure and spotless. He purifies the church in order to make us spotless. Similarly, husbands and wives should love their spouses despite their blemishes. We know we're not spotless. That's why the God-ordained roles of headship and submission are so important for us to get right. If the meaning of marriage is to reflect the truth about Christ and his bride, the church, we cannot be indifferent to this in our own marriages. You see, Christ's purpose for his bride and for the Christian wife, who you represent that, is for your everlasting joy. It's for love and it's for peace. That's what he wants for his bride. It's what he wants for you, brides, here. There are, these are some of the truths. There's a lot to cover today, but I hope that gets you excited for the text. So read along with me, if you will, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see their respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Father, would you be with us today? Spirit, you wrote these words through the Apostle Peter, and so we ask that you would illuminate them to our hearts today, that what could be controversial, what could be upsetting to some, Lord, I ask that it would be a healing balm, that it would be a joy and a great encouragement to us, both husbands and wives, in our marriage. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Peter starts by using a conjunction, which he likes. He he says, likewise, to link the idea of last week's sermon, the idea of slaves submitting to unjust masters, and then wives submitting to unbelieving husbands. The initial question of the text is this. How can a Christian woman live faithfully in the bonds of marriage to an unbelieving spouse? He answers in the same way he's answered previously with everything else. He says you can do this by living a beautiful Christian life. Live a life that reflects Jesus Christ. And by doing so, this wife, this woman, might win him by faithful deeds rather than by faithful words. Now, Peter had previously stressed the importance of God's word. God's word is vital in the conversion Process. Back in chapter 123, he said, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. And so the word of God is essential to our salvation. Faith comes by hearing. So what Peter says, without a word from the wife, what he most likely is, is talking about is without badgering her husband day in and day out and saying, Would you just become a Christian already? Will you just stop? Will you just become a Christian? It doesn't work that way. And even though the husband, it says, has been disobedient to the word, hope remains. There is hope here. He might be won by the behavior of his faithful wife. It doesn't mean if if you're here today and you have an unbelieving spouse, it doesn't mean it will happen It means that God might, in his grace and mercy, use your behavior to bring it about. Submission, then, is a divine calling for a wife to honor her husband's leadership and help accomplish that calling through it with her own gifts. This is an attitude that says, it's my delight when you lead our family. It is my joy when you take responsibility, when you guide us in love. I love that. I love that. Submission, especially to an unbelieving spouse, paradoxically, is also a strategy that God will use to change them. By God's grace, he might do it. Next, Peter expands on this theme, and he's going to give us a list of attributes that the holy women of old used to model and that we're to model them. And he labels this as respectful and pure conduct. 
And he links that behavior to the women of the past, and he names Sarah specifically as the example we are to follow. We are to look at Sarah, the mother of the faith, and we're to follow her example. The, verse, the end of verse 6, she writes, You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. So for the remainder of our time today, we're going to look at what it means to be a precious daughter of Sarah. Ladies, that's what we're going to be looking at. And there's plenty of application for the sons of Sarah as well. The sons of Abraham. So men, listen up. First, daughters of Sarah are willingly submissive to their husbands. In the New Testament, older women are encouraged to teach younger women to be subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. That's Titus 2, 5. Paul elaborates on this at length. In Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, 6 as well. She is to live in such a way that her life is a testimony to the grace of God. She is actually transformed. She has been changed. And the way she lives shows that. This is a spirit of of joyful submission. And it flows out of her love for Christ. She is working as to the Lord. It has nothing to do with being inferior to another person. And it has everything to do with seeing Jesus as superior in your own life. Now, the very idea of that fills some women with dread, with anger. My husband doesn't deserve respect. If you knew my husband, you would know this is ridiculous. I refuse to be seen as inferior. My husband makes me feel inferior. I won't submit to him. He's cruel. This, as with most things, takes us back to Genesis. We have to keep going back to Genesis because it all started in that blasted garden with the fall. And God said to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That's the reality of the fall. The sinful desire to rebel, to not submit, was built into the curse And the sinful desire for a husband to be cruel, to rule over as as authoritative, as dictatorial, that was built into the curse as well. And so we know in Christian marriage, if we are to reflect Jesus, ideally we would be putting sin to death together. It would be for the husband to say, I get that. I know my urges. I know know the sin that that dwells up inside me. bubbles up, and for the wife to say, I know the sin that bubbles up in my heart, and together, by God's grace, let's kill it. Let's kill it. It's why the Bible encourages us not to be unequally yoked by choice. In the same manner, the husband must know that no one can be head of his, he can't be head of his household without his wife's permission. And what I mean by that is that a man may dominate through coercion, through fear, even through abuse. But that's not headship. That's dictatorship. A man who leads in a despicable manner should answer to the state through law enforcement, and ultimately he will have to answer to God whether he acknowledges it or not. You answer to a higher authority. You are not to lead your wife in that manner. Secondly, daughters of Sarah have an outward air of holy dignity about them. Verse 2 speaks of the wife's pure conduct. 
which is really better translated as chaste, a chaste conduct. And Peter illustrates what that looks like in verse 3. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Daughters of Sarah are not conformed to the patterns of this world. And all that means is you are not a slave to fashion. You're not a slave to the latest trends. You, you don't flaunt your bodies. You dress modestly. You don't take God's canvas and spend hours upon hours upon hours covering up his masterpiece. You may not like what the mirror shows, but you've learned to be content with the way God has made you and you praise him for it. Now, do you see why this is controversial? <laughs> now, before you, before you get upset, before you panic, I give the qualification. I'm going to give you a qualification. It's not saying makeup is evil. Some people have read that and thought that. It's not saying jewelry is wicked or fancy dresses are wrong. What it means is that you should be more concerned with your inward beauty than your outward beauty. The name Sarah means princess. It means princess. And we know from the Bible she was a knockout. She was absolutely gorgeous. In Genesis 12, 14, Abraham goes to Egypt and the Egyptians see that she's very beautiful. Not once, but twice he lies about Sarah because she's so beautiful. And the kings keep wanting to take her for their own wife. Now, she's 70 years at this point. So she truly is a princess. She's gorgeous. And so artificial beauty, beauty on the outside is not wrong. It's not wrong. It just... The artificial nature of it doesn't enhance you. It doesn't ultimately enhance you. It's the inward excellency of your spirit which makes you gorgeous. Verse 4, Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which which in God's sight is very precious. And so daughters of Sarah walk the walk and they talk the talk. They have an inner tranquility about them that comes from knowing Christ. Just as some men, you know, are obsessed with physical strength. They're obsessed with hitting the gym and they go for hours and hours and hours. And there's nothing wrong with being strong. But the Bible says inward spiritual fitness is of lasting worth. The body will fade. Looks will fade. Muscles deflate. You'll remember in the Old Testament... The Lord sent Samuel to go to David's house to go anoint David. And he gets there and he sees his brother Eliab. And Eliab must have been impressive. Because Samuel says, that's my guy. And God says, not the guy. Not the guy. You see, I look upon the heart. God looks upon the heart, not the outward appearance. And so we can read scripture like this. And we can throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we don't need to. We don't need to. We just don't need to make an idol of these external things. And you know people do. You know people do. Thirdly, the holy women of old acted like this because, verse 5, they hoped in God. They did these things. They submitted. They, They had a quiet spirit because they hoped in God. They had a living hope in God. If you have a living hope today in Christ, you are a free woman. You are free. 
And when you submit to your husband, whether believer or unbeliever, you do so because you are so free. Because Christ has set you free, you say, I can do that. My husband may not be honorable, but I can, I can show him the honor that Christ calls me to give. I can give him the respect. And then you can pray he will, by God's grace, live up to that respect. When your hope's in God, you're not caught up in worthless things. Gossip, fear of what others think, endless insecurities about yourself. The Bible says, who cares? Who cares about what the world thinks? God loves you. And you can say, I'm a daughter of Sarah. I'm a child of the king. And he's made promises to me. He's made promises to you. Christ has promised to love you and cherish you, warts and all. You are his beloved. And he is yours. And so you can take confidence in the reality that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that applies to men just as much as it applies to all the women in this room. Don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie otherwise. A Christian woman does not put her hope in her husband, not in the prospects of finding a husband. She does not put her hope in her body, her good looks, her hair, her money, her security, her fame. Again, we are like grass, Peter says. We will fade. All that fades. Instead, you put your hope in something that doesn't fade. And Peter has called that the enduring word of the Lord. The promises of God. This is exactly the type of woman Proverbs 31 is always talking about. Proverbs 31.25, it says, Strength and dignity are her clothing. Oh, heavens. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Have you ever met a woman like that? Have you ever met a woman like that? I met one once, and I, and I married her. Best decision of my life. So first, you hope in God. And then Christ says, put on that living hope like a wedding dress. Put on my righteousness like a wedding dress and run. Run down the aisle into my arms. Gentle, quiet submission. You're cleansed. You're washed. You are made new in Jesus Christ. Fourth, we look to the mother of the faith, Sarah, as our example. Uh, Verse 6, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, this is not, you know, don't go home today and go, yes, Lord. You know, when your husband, you know, that's not what's going on. It's the little L. It's the little L here. It's like me saying, yes, sir. No, ma'am. It's a sign of respect. The obedience she renders to Abraham is a lesser obedience than the uppercase L that she renders to God. Sarah was a joint heir, along with Abraham, of the grace of life. Physically, that's true of the birth of Isaac. And spiritually, it's true that she followed after Yahweh. She followed Abraham's God. Abraham loved her very much. He respected her until the very end because she was a great wife. She was a helpmeet to him. When she died at the age of 127, we read that he mourned and he wept over her. In fact, she's the only woman in the entire Bible whose age is recorded at the time of her death. And so the Bible elevates Sarah herself 
as a great pillar of what a godly woman in the faith looks like. Though her name meant princess, she was not above household chores. When the visitors come to Abraham, the angels come to meet them, she is preparing the meal. We know she's an excellent mother because we read about an excellent man she raised named Isaac. Where did Isaac learn to submit to his father if not by watching his mother? Isaac goes up the mountain, doesn't question Abraham, believes and trusts in his father. He submits. She showed tremendous faith in following Abraham as a believer. You can imagine this. You're, you're in there, the Ur of the Chaldees. You're, you're a pagan. You're an outsider. And God comes to Abraham and he goes, hey, honey, uh, God showed up and um, he told me we're leaving. We're leaving the family. We're leaving the house. We're leaving everything. We're going to go be nomads. Are you crazy? We can't. What are, you, what, are you, what are you talking about? Where are we going? I don't know, says Abraham. You don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. God's called me to go. I'm going to go. Does Sarah ever push back? Do we read that? She goes. And by going, she's saying, I trust. And I submit. If, my hus- if this is my husband's God, he will be my God as well. Then we read this somewhat cryptic statement at the end of verse 6. It says, if, And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. And you go, what does that have to do? What does being afraid have to do with being like Sarah? Not only did Sarah do good, there was a godly fearlessness about her faith. Again, listen to Proverbs 31.25. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs. At the time to come. And so Sarah journeyed on, going from city to city. A sojourner gives up that security, gives up all that. She dwells in tents. Ladies, would you like that? Would you like to live in a tent? Set it up, put it down, set it up, put it down. Be nomads. And in the midst of that time, Abraham says, Honey, oh, my nephew Lot's in trouble again. I'm going to go pick up my sword and I'm going to go fight. You're too old. Are you kidding No, you can't go fight. Is that what she says? We don't read that. And so I imagine her grabbing the sword going, go go get him, honey. (laughs) Oh, Lot, go get him. She supports him. As believers, are we ruled by fear, insecurity, by doubt? Or do we have faith? As the psalmist says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Christian women in Peter's day were persecuted the same as everyone else was persecuted. Perhaps you've heard of Blandina, who withstood so much torture, it said the perpetrators became tired under her strength. Or Perpetua, who died by directing the gladiator's sword to her own neck because she had survived trampling and goring by a bull. History is filled with names of the precious daughters of Sarah who defied tyrants and laughed in the face of the devil. And Peter says, are you a people marked by laughter? Are you a people marked by by a joyous laughter and not by fear, but by faith? Author Brandon Meeks writes, laughter is inaugurated eschatology. 
To laugh is to plow in hope. Laughter in the face of recalcitrant unbelief is a revolutionary act of faith. To laugh is to refuse sorrow, death, and despair to have the final word. You remember, if we look back again to Sarah, when God promised Abram and Sarai a child, they couldn't help but laugh. It's a little funny. In our old age, Lord, not only are we physically unable, we're, you know, we're, we're as good as dead, the Bible says, of, of Abraham. And they laugh. And God has a sense of humor as well because he gives them new names. Abraham and Sarah, which is an onomatopoeia of ha-ha. And then Sarah looks at his, her son and says, Ah, Isaac, son of laughter, God has made me laugh. The life of faith for these two elderly saints began with laughter from God. They were not scared. They were not frightened. They laughed because they had promises to hold on to. And now by faith, we share in Abraham and Sarah's joy because a son has been given to us. We had natural inabilities, spiritually barren and dead. And then Christ came and we're able to say, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, the beloved son who submits and goes up to the altar and willingly sacrifices himself for us. And laughter, therefore, is forever tied together with the resurrection of Christ. We mock death. Where's your stinger, death? Where, where's your victory? <laughs> We've won. We've won. The gospel is deep comedy. Everything sad will become untrue. And on Easter morning, when the, when the, the tomb, the stone rolled away, we snicker like little kids. Because we know the punchline is that it's empty. It's empty. Satan didn't know. Oh, can you imagine his face? <laughs> what laughter we have as believers. Isaac's promise is born afresh in us through Christ. The freedom to laugh belongs to those who have been liberated by the son of laughter. This living hope is God's gift to all the pessimists of the world. And so Jesus' words from Luke 6.21 come as encouragement to us today. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Hebrews 11.11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Not by nature, but by faith, Isaac was born. And if you do not have faith today, if you try to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and say, I'm just going to go submit to my husband. I'm just going to go love my wife. I'll just go try this and I'll work hard. And I'll if you do not have faith that God will do a good work in you, and you do not pray that by his grace he would accomplish that, it will not happen. So you will be her children if you do good, and you do not fear anything that is frightening. 
I think given the context of the letter itself, Peter's also saying this. He's saying, you will have nothing to fear when persecution comes, which is coming. Those two names, Blandina, Perpetua, they had this letter from Peter. And I can't help but imagine them reading it, hearing it beforehand, and then going to be killed, to be eaten by wild animals and thinking, I have Christ. I have Christ. I have hope. God will be with you, even if you have an unbelieving spouse. Do not fear. Final verse. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The pathway for a joyful Christian marriage is simply this. Winsome wives and honorable husbands. Husbands love their wives by living in one house, sharing one bed, and being physically intimate with one woman. It tears the fabric of marriage apart when a husband and wife deprive each other of love. And that's not just physical intimacy, that's emotional intimacy as well. It's easy to grow apart, isn't it? It's easy to be caught up in schedules and business and work. And before you know it, you've grown apart. But the sexual union is a gift from God that both seals and strengthens the covenant bond of marriage. And so Peter says you are to live with them in an understanding way. That means husbands must know and understand your wives. Physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, all of it. All encompassing. You must know them. When a man says, I'll never understand women, I say, good. You're not called to understand women. You just need to know one woman. We are scientists in a narrow field of study. A man should know the preferences, the moods, the needs of his wife so he can love and care for her as Christ loves the church. And not only are we to know and understand them, we are to treat them with honor, Peter says. Now, when that word honor was used previous in the previous chapter, it was speaking about Christ as the rejected cornerstone. And the way it translated there was precious. Precious. As husbands, we honor our wives by letting them know how precious they are to us. When you're gentle with them, when you're slow to anger, when you're quick to forgive, you're quick to ask for their forgiveness. We honor them when we lead well. We show them how precious they are with words of affirmation, with touch, with shows of affection. And we treat them this way because Peter says they're the weaker vessel. Now that is controversial, but it shouldn't be. It's actually just talking about physical strength. While exceptions do exist, the rule is that husbands are stronger than their wives. That's the way it should be. And so husbands are protectors. How did Christ love the church? As a good shepherd. He died for the church. And so we are to be willing to die for our women. If someone breaks into the house, I'm I'm meeting them first. If the Titanic sinks, women and children get in the boats first. 
We hold the door, we tip the hat, we stand up when a lady enters the room. That's not to be insulting, it's to show you you are precious. The word weaker does not mean worthless. It's the exact opposite. Think about it this way. Every man has a bucket. Every man has a bucket they know and love and cherish. I have a a blue bucket from Lowe's. It's plastic. I love that bucket. And it can hold various things. You know, it's sturdy. It's built well. But if if it breaks, I'll just go buy a new one for three bucks or whatever, you know, for a bucket. Now, maybe you have an old rusty bucket. And it's got nails in there, screws, whatever you carry with it. It's probably a real piece of work, but you love that bucket. It has a specific purpose, but it's cheap, can easily be replaced. Now, in a museum, there are vases. And these vases could be used for the same thing, but you'd be an idiot to use them for the same thing. Physically, those vases are weaker, but they are more precious. And they are to be treated with gloves. They are to be treated as beautiful. They accent the flowers that are in them. They are gorgeous. They are works of art. They are to be treasured and protected. Men, am I still talking about buckets or vases? I'm talking about our daughters. I'm talking about our grandmothers. I'm talking about our wives. I'm talking about all of our precious sisters in the faith. Precious, precious. And they are to be treated as such. Physically weaker, yes. Spiritually, joint heirs. The cross is the great equalizer of mankind. Proverbs 18.22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Do you see your wife as a gift to be treasured? As someone to lay your life down for? When you appreciate her as such, your children will rise up and call her blessed. Wives, do you submit to your husbands as to the Lord? How sweet it is when husband and wife know together that their only comfort in life and death is Jesus Christ. And when husband and wife know Jesus, prayers flow easily. Our prayers will not be hindered. It's impossible to pray when you are mad at your wife, when you're angry at your spouse. It's it's impossible to, to go before the throne of grace and say, I refuse to forgive my spouse. Now forgive me. Can't do it. And so your hair, your prayers will be hindered if you do not love your wife well. The final question for us today is simply this. Are you being obedient to the word? Are you sitting here today in unbelief while your believing spouse pours their life out for you and for your family? How long will you run from Jesus and be a rebel? How much longer will you shirk your duties as a husband by failing to lead, failing to love? How much longer will you shirk your duties as a wife by failing to submit? Everyone must examine their own hearts and repent. And so I pray this is not a discouragement, but an encouragement to you. And if you have a wife, if you have a husband, I want you to go home today and look at them in the face and say, I'm sorry. You know what you need to be sorry about. (laughs) You know what you need to repent of and say, oh, I love you. Oh, I'm sorry I've not treated you as precious. I'm sorry I've not treated you with the respect you deserve.
would you forgive me? And Jesus, would you forgive me as well? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, may you all, by God's grace, cherish one another and bring glory to God. This was a message for wives, but we're all the bride of Christ. And so we need to learn to laugh. There's a lot of things to be scared of in this world. We need to learn to laugh. Christ will keep his wedding vows to us. Let's walk in the hope of his covenant-keeping promise. Let's pray.